Today's show is brought to you by Zip Recruiter, the presenting sponsor of Recode Media. Zip Recruiter's powerful technology finds people with the right experience for your job and actively invites them to apply so you get qualified candidates fast. And now our listeners can try it for free at ziprecruiter.com slash Peter. Today's show is brought to you by Ericsson. Have you ever wished you could stream high-quality HD videos on a crowded train? Or maybe you wished you could sit courtside and watch a big game live from your couch. Well, Ericsson is about to change the game in cellular networking with high-speed, low-latency 5G. Find out what the future looks like at ericsson.com slash 5G. That's ericsson.com slash 5G. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I am back. Thanks to everyone for your patience. I'm going to have more extended thank yous at the end of this podcast. But for now, let's introduce you to Jason Reitman, who has not one but two films out this year. Hmm. One is called Tully. came out in the spring. The other one is called Front Runner, which should probably be out as you're listening to this. Welcome, Jason. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. You've made some of my favorite movies, which is what I tell most of the directors who come on here. <laughs> because it's true. Because <laughs> Don't I get the lie pick to and me. Shoes. It's Don't true. butter me up. Juno. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for smoking. Young adult. Thank you. Um, what am I missing? I'm missing a whole bunch. Up in the air? Up in the air. Makes, that one makes me anxious. Which is why? why I think it blocks it out. Because it's about losing your job. Or one of, one of the plot lines. Yeah, about and it's interesting because, you know, we made that movie in the midst of a recession. But when I started writing it, we were in the midst of an economic boom. So when I wrote the movie, the idea that he fired people for a living was kind of ironic. And then by the time we were making it in 2010 and shooting— It was very real. Yeah, we were shooting in St. Louis and we were shooting in Detroit. There were two cities that got really hit hard. Detroit, obviously, St. Louis, uh, the Anheuser-Busch planted closed and 10,000 jobs or something like that were gone. And I remember my father came to me because he actually produced that movie and he said, you know— you're capturing a moment. You have to treat this realistically. And and that was the moment we decided, well, what if we cast all real people who had lost their jobs and put them in the movie? Right. And we, we put out an ad as that we were making a documentary about the recession. And we brought in all these real people and we interviewed them and then took them through this like role play where we kind of fired them on camera. It's and, kind of unbearable even now. to It's on Netflix mm-hmm. and it's also downloadable. So it was definitely it's probably on my phone right now as mm-hmm. we speak. Watching those scenes makes me really upset. Well, then I guess I did my job right. So I will take that as a compliment. Congrats. Thank you. I'll talk to you a little bit about Tully, but let's talk about Frontrunner since that's the movie okay. that is out. That is the Gary Hart story. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people who listen to this about tech and media and politics will know the Gary Hart story. Want to give them the 30-second synopsis? Yeah, sure. Well, look, uh, they may not. Look, I'm 41 years old, and when I heard uh, a radio lab centered around Matt Bai's book on Gary Hart and the scandal, I didn't know the story. I was 10 years old when this happened, and uh, I was much more interested in the trajectory of the Back to the Future trilogy than I was about politics at the time. Gary Hart in 1987 was the presumed next president of this country. He was 10 points ahead of uh, George Bush. He was 25 points ahead of every Democrat. Telegenic? Oh, I mean, charismatic, Kennedy-esque, and had big ideas. And look, this is a guy in the mid-'80s who was saying— this country's addicted to oil. That addiction's going to take us into the Middle East where we're going to encounter Islamic terrorism and not know how to fight it. Uh, this is a guy who was kind of ahead of everything, and he had an affair. He met a woman at a party uh, on a boat and invited her to his house in D.C., and a Miami journalist followed her there, and they wound up, Gary Hart and this journalist, a couple others, 
in his alleyway in the middle of the night in a scene that is right out of a movie uh, where no one knew what to do because no one had ever been in that position before. He had famously told the press, and I guess it's the Washington Post specifically, go ahead and put a tail on me. You won't find anything. Yeah, I mean, that's actually kind of a misunderstood part of the story. And one of the reasons I wanted to make a movie was that follow me around quote, which is yeah. kind of when you ask people about the Gary Hart story and say, do you remember this? They say, monkey oh, business. yes, monkey business, the, the name of the boat, and a photo. So what we misremember is that the follow me around quote came out the same day as the Miami Herald article. So uh, they, they, they were already following him. They were, they were tailing him. They were uh, in his alleyway. And then after the fact, it was kind of misremembered or retold because it's much more interesting to think that the guy said, follow me around, come get me. And then they did when that didn't happen. And the photo, this famous photograph, came out six weeks after he left the race. So he was done. He was I was going to ask you why it wasn't in the movie. It's not in the movie because, look, I'm a filmmaker. I'm interested in story. I'm yeah. interested in how we remember It's an things. iconic image. At least it's burned in my head. Because I was 17 when it and came out. And that's what so makes that... it so perfect. So what I'm interested in is look at this thriller of a story. In less than a week, a guy goes from being the next president of the United States to leaving politics forever. A guy who understood computing economy, Russia, the Middle East. You know, he becomes president. Probably don't go into Kuwait. Probably don't go into Afghanistan. Probably it's not an Iraqi war. The the the, the history of our country is a lot. Right, so different. instead of him, we get Michael Dukakis, and Michael Dukakis loses yeah, of course. the push in a landslide. Right. So, but what do we remember? Do we remember that? Huh. We kind of gave up on this guy in less than a week. Perhaps this is worthy of debate. No. What we remember is. That boat sure had a funny name. And this photograph that actually came out after the fact, we, we remember, uh, contextualize, and make that the, the idea itself. So this is about media. This is about politics. This is about hubris. What does this story set in 87 tell us about 2018 politics? Well, I think it brings up all the questions we're asking now, the questions about gender politics, the questions about where does a public life start and where does a private life uh, start? You know, particularly in the era of a reality, media, a reality TV presidency and a, a, the celebrification of presidency and politics. And this line, this wall that goes up between the candidate and the press in 1987, when this moment happens, it becomes the job of the press secretary to never let this moment happen again. And because of that, you get only manicured statements. You have zero relationship, real, prior to Gary Hart. Politicians and journalists, I mean, you know this. I don't mean to say this as if yeah. uh, you don't know this, but they're, uh, they're socializing together. They're drinking together. They spend time. The, journal, the journalists knew who these candidates were as people, and they could tell us who they were. And there's a line there. I think it's, you attribute to Ben Bradley in there mm-hmm. saying, yeah, we knew, we knew Johnson was screwing around. We just yeah, didn't report on it. And, uh, yeah, and this, Ben Bradley really said that. He also really said this other line in the movie, which is – If TV news starts covering something, if other newspapers start covering things, if tabloid news starts covering things, how do they not? And this is the moment also where the Washington Post says, we don't control the story anymore. And look, I wake up, (laughs) I'm like everybody, I wake up and the first thing I do is I check up my phone and I go, oh, fuck, (laughs) you know, like what happened? And almost always there's a New York Times or Washington Post story and one is about something real, you know, Kavanaugh hearings, midterms, what have you. And then right next to it is from the same source, from New York Times, Washington Post, a story about Pete Davidson and Ariana Grande. It's like, really? This is, I'm getting this same news from the same service and it's on parallel level? So one thing that that is, I don't know if it's confusing, but I've thought about the entire time I was watching the movie was, 
if Donald Trump doesn't happen, mm-hmm. then I really have a good idea of sort of where this movie is at. This movie is saying this is the beginning of sort of how we got to where we're at today now yeah. in terms of the celebrification of the president and, and the way we ask them to act and mm-hmm. behave and the way we treat them. But the idea that a presidential candidate was blown out of the water because he had a single affair mm-hmm. that was documented, right? Mm-hmm. We're in pussy-grabbing tape. It, it, Donald Trump blows all that out of the water. I'm right? not sure if that's true. Yeah. I, I think he's a unique case. And well, that's, I guess, one of the big fundamental questions of our age. Yeah, and we won't really know this for five, ten years, maybe longer until hopefully we are out of this hellscape and we have perspective on it. But uh, If we are allowed to look back, yes. Yes, seriously. But— It brings up a lot of questions. And right now we are trying to have conversations, but it's really difficult. You go on Twitter, the level is a 12. You you get your head ripped off the moment you say anything on Twitter. So there's something about having the prism of 1987, having a story from another era where you can actually break this down and go, okay, wait, how did we get here? Do you – and then I think you were intentionally at a remove from this, but do you think Gary Hart – deserve to be kicked out of the race for this? Do you? Uh, what's your take on sort of whether or not he should have been allowed to be a presidential candidate after this, uh, for having an affair? I don't have a take on that. And I purposely don't have right. a take on that. I don't think it's my job to tell the audience, hey, this is what you're supposed to think. I hate filmmakers who do that. Any Anytime a director comes in going, I have the answer, I, I immediately tune out. What I'm interested in is filmmakers who have questions, movies that have questions. And this is based on a book that had a lot of great questions about, all right, we seem to gloss over this guy pretty quickly. It went away like that, and we never really reconsidered the potential of this candidate, who he was, how smart he was, how thoughtful he was, and what road we went on because of that. And I think we're looking to have this conversation. Here's a movie that has the opportunity for either side. It's a movie not from Gary Hart's perspective. It's from the journalist's perspective. It's from, and even within the journalists, you have not only the Herald and the Post, but even within the Post, you have a conversation between yeah. five different, you know, journalists and editors trying to figure out the right thing. It's his campaign people who are in the midst of a scandal, and you have men on the campaign trying to save him, and you have a young woman who's tasked with the job of taking Donna Rice and bringing her home and is forced to look at this candidate that she's been sacrificing everything for and go, wait a second, you know, who is this guy and how do I really see him? You do some interesting stuff with Donna Rice. The way you introduce her in the movie, she's shot from behind. You don't see her face for a long time. She's sort of this body, um, which I assume is very intentional. Well, yeah. I mean, when I would tell people I was doing, people would say, you know, you know what movie are you doing next? I'd say, I'm doing the Gary Hart scandal. They would always do this. They'd go, monkey business. And what was her name? What was that blonde's name? And they would talk about her as though Donna Rice were an object. So knowing their presumption, at first, we don't let them see her. You get to this boat scene, you think it's going to be salacious, and you're not given that. And you're left to wonder, wait, why why don't I get to meet her yet? And you only get to meet Donna Rice in the movie once her life has been stolen out of her hands. Once she's, she's now... A human being uh, who was, is smart, educated, ambitious, and her life was stolen from her. And now the audience hopefully has to rethink, oh, that's right. I went in with these presumptions about who Donna Rice was. I'm assuming you were making this, still finishing the movie, filming, editing, uh, when the Me Too stuff broke out. That's about a year ago. Did that change the way you viewed her character or any other part of the story? Did you adjust the movie sort of? I mean, it's interesting, right? I mean, uh, because the the movie has to be seen in light of the presidency, which happened after 
we wrote the movie, and the Me Too movement, which started after we wrote the movie. I'm fortunate. I've been working with the same producer for over 10 years now, Helen Estabrook, who produced Up in the Air and all these other movies we were talking about. And she and I have conversations about gender constantly. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why the relationship between Clooney and Vera Farmiga and Anna Kendrick is as interesting as it is in that movie. Yeah. And it is certainly the reason that we took the approach on this film. It, Helen would say, and this is prior to the Me Too movement, she would say, look, you have to remember the particular burden that is put on the shoulders of women in the midst of a scandal. It's different than the burden that's put it on is almost told. It's almost always told as the man's story. Mm-hmm. And this is either an a unseemly look into his private life and we shouldn't have done it, or mm-hmm. this is he's got a tragic flaw and he's, he's, not, he's not worthy to be president, but it's always about him. And, yeah. and the woman is v- very often just a side an story. An object. If, if that, yeah, an object. And we were interested in what if you were the one female editor at the Washington Post, and rather than just only speaking your side, you have to speak for your entire gender. What if you are the only woman on the heart campaign, and because you're a woman, you are tasked with, you know, bring Donna Rice home and get her back to Florida, and in those moments, you have these reflective moments between each other. What if you're Gary Hart's wife? What if you're Lee Hart? And... You're not crying in a corner. You are strong, and you want to stand by your husband, and you are angry at your husband, and your anger has to be exposed on a public level. And you feel, rightly so, that this anger doesn't belong to the press. It belongs to her. You know, how do you think about that from the outside? You are releasing this movie on Election Day? Uh, Yeah, we'll be limited LA and New York on Election Day, and then it will platform out from there. Does that seem like a better or worse idea now? I mean, I don't know. It's a bit of a stunt. Look, if I'm being honest, it's a bit of a stunt. Look, there's only one thing that people should be doing on election day, and it's seeing the front runner. No, it's it's voting. After they vote, they can go see. After they vote, they can no. Look, on election day, people are going to vote, and they're going to be glued to their TV, and we're going to be seeing where this country is going, and that, you know, so maybe you could see it the day after. Exactly. Look, in the morning, we don't talk about the Sopranos episode or the Mad Men episode anymore. We talk about politics. We talk about what's happening in this country. That's our entertainment. And that's what will be happening on Election Day. And I hope over the course of this month, as this film comes out, as you're looking for a way to kind of have a conversation, like a rational conversation about this uh, moment, and see, you know, a cool thriller of a movie that's entertaining yeah. and funny, you go see The Front Runner. We're going to take a quick pause. You're going to hear from sponsors at the same time, possibly, as long as you're paying attention to the ads. You can also maybe go get a ticket in advance for Jason's movie. Oh, starring Hugh Jack. It's God excellent. bless you. I saw it for free, but I would pay with my own money to go see it. Be right back. Today's show is brought to you by Ericsson. On Recode Media, we talk to change makers in their fields. In this next advertiser segment from Ericsson, you'll hear about how 5G technology is the next wave of change in the world of mobile connectivity. And now, the 5G Meditation Minute. Welcome. Just relax your body. Breathe. Repeat your mantra and feel the calm wash over you. 5G is here. 5G is here. And it's going to change the way we live. This next generation of wireless technology will revolutionize how we send and receive data. And Ericsson is one of the companies building the infrastructure we'll need. Push away the bad reception and overcrowded networks. 5G uses multiple antenna to boost capacity. So in large crowds of people, like at a packed concert, you can still connect and share selfies instantly. 
<sighs> Embrace the cloud. With minuscule latency and edge computing, 5G makes even remote files behave as if they were on your device. And you will have so much more to be thankful for. Augmented reality, 8K streaming, AI-assisted services, smart cities, and the ever-growing Internet of Things. Your future is empowered by 5G. <sighs> Lie back. Be present. Focus on real connections. Ericsson is bringing 5G to life. Breathe in and breathe out. Repeat your mantra and feel the calm wash over you. 5G is here. <sighs> thanks for listening, and thanks to Erickson for sponsoring this episode of Recode Media. Back here with Jason uh, Reitman, who has the front runner, and you've already bought the ticket, so you are in for a treat. Yeah, and uh, thank you for giving me the $10 for the free screening we showed you. Yeah. It's the, the Sony has very nice screening rooms. <laughs> I, I like their screening rooms. It's a nice building, too. We mentioned you had two movies out this year. A movie we just talked about stars Hugh Jackman. Tully, which came out earlier this year, stars Charlize Theron. Mm-hmm. How do you get Charlize Theron and or Hugh Jackman to star in your movies in, in 2018, 2017, God 2016? only knows. I'm a... Very, very fortunate director, uh, and I've been lucky since day one. Like I was, I was. My advice to uh, young filmmakers is always: first, be born the son of a famous director. Let's spell. Uh, let's spell that out. That's Ivan Reitman. Yeah, made some of the great, great formative movies for me, seventies and eighties. I love it. This is literally, by the way, I wish you could see this. This is the first time you are smiling in this conversation. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I'm, you start I'm talking sorry. about my dad's movies, and and by the way, that is what is unique about my father is. Uh, my father's movies make people happier. Your He's, movies make me happy too, but... You admitted at the beginning of this conversation that my movies make you anxious. I also I enjoy anxiety. <laughs> well played. Stripes. Yeah. Animal House. I once spent a summer watching Stripes every single day. Oh, my God. Um, meatballs. Yeah. Which really struck a chord By the way, me. my father was a CIT... Uh, a C, what is it? Uh, CIT. A CIT. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he was... You know there's always one guy at summer camp, the guy who always has a guitar? That was my dad. Pretty much my, I didn't go to summer camp, so my idea of summer camp is Never? pretty much formed by meatballs, yeah. Ever? Yeah, it was like day camp, it's not the same. God, where'd you grow up? Suburban Minnesota. Huh, that's it, like yeah, I know. lakes and stuff. Yeah, yeah, my parents weren't into it. Huh. What's the JCC day camp? Played Gaga, it's not the same thing. <laughs> um, oh, no, and, and, no, no, my, my, yeah, I'll get into my siblings later. And then uh, Ghostbusters, unless I mentioned Ghostbusters. Yeah, Basically all the Bill Murray movies. Yeah. So you grew up with a dad who did that. Yeah. And was your thought, that's what I'm going to do too, or I don't want to do any, I want no part of what no, my dad my, does? No, my initial instinct was stay far away. Yeah. Uh, I mean, why enter this profession? If you're the son of a famous director, clearly you're an arrogant, no talent that has an alcohol or drug problem. Why go into a job where this was the presumption of me? And I, I at first went pre-med thinking... So you were really thoughtful about it. Like, I do not want to be... Oh, yeah. Like, I, I, I mean, I, I'm aware. Like, famous I, I, person's I, yeah, son I know doing how what people he does. treat the people. And uh, I, I thought, uh, no one questions why you become a doctor. No one's ever like, doctor, really? And my father visited me at school and said, what are you doing? And uh, I told him I'm scared. And he said, well, being scared really isn't a reason to do anything. And uh, he, you know, pushed me to follow my heart and become a storyteller, and in that moment became the first Jewish dad in history to say, don't be a doctor, become a filmmaker. Good job, Ivan Reitman. So you got into movies that way, and I think you mentioned he helped to produce some of the movies earlier earlier on. 
or some of uh, the- he produced up in the air. I was the only was one. I mean, obviously, I was I was very wary of my father being a producer on yeah. my work because I was already thoughtful enough about nepotism and being accused of it. So, thank you for smoking was done. Thank you for smoking was actually financed by Elon Musk and Peter Thiel and David Sachs and these guys who had sold PayPal to eBay and found themselves billionaires and wanted to make movies. What was the, what was the uh, production company then? It was called Room Nine Entertainment, and uh, which I guess was a college dorm room at Stanford, okay. and they literally each cut a check for a million dollars, and that's how we made right, the movie. Good, good job, Peter Thiel. It's not something we often say on this podcast, <laughs> but, but good for you. But in making movies today, because you make the kind of movies that don't get made very much anymore, and if they do get made, they often are Amazon movies or Netflix mm-hmm. movies. You put movies in theaters. We were talking about the Nicole Hollow Center uh, interview I did recently, and sh- her movie is now a Netflix movie. Mm-hmm. She didn't get to make it in the theater, but you have figured out still somehow some way to get these things into theaters. I'm Look, I'm really lucky in that is what you brought up initially. I get to work with movie stars like Hugh Jackman and Charlize Theron who are interested in making thoughtful, interesting films. And I was lucky that Braun, this Canadian company that makes movies, is making great movies, thought these two scripts were worthy enough to finance and produce. Have you thought about? I'm sure you have. What is your thought about making a Netflix movie or an Amazon movie I instead at, of doing this route? It's an inevitable part of the journey now, right? And I'm sure if I was growing up right now, I wouldn't think twice about it. I'd be like, yeah, I watch everything on Netflix. Why Why would I care? I'm in love with the movie theater process yeah. uh, of going to see movies in the dark with a group, a collective audience. I think that's really important. I think laughing with strangers, crying with strangers is really important. Uh, I'm really grateful for film festivals because of that as the movie theater – experience changes. But look, your business, my business, it's all changing. Where we consume media uh, has changed. So Nicole said her last movie uh, was going to be a theatrically released movie, didn't work, and then there was an issue with casting, and she couldn't get it financed with the cast she wanted, and it eventually ends up at Netflix, who says, you want to make it with Ben Mendelsohn as the lead? Go for it. Have you thought about sort of the upside there, weighing that again? You know, look, if I, if I do it for Netflix, at least right now, they'll make, I can make whatever I want versus, yes, I won't have the communal experience of putting it in a theater, and maybe that's worth it. I mean, here's the funny thing is I'll tell you the week everyone sees my movies. I get emails always the same day, and it's the day my movie goes onto airplanes. The week they're on airplanes, suddenly I'm getting emails from hey. everyone I know. Hey, man, I loved your film. Yeah. I I was on a flight to Omaha, and man, your, your film's good. I don't know why I didn't see it in the theaters, but uh, it was great on the plane. And you take that as a compliment. Uh, hey, man, if they want to spend two hours watching your movie, you should take it as a compliment. Yeah. And, uh, and look, life changes. The world changes. A hundred years ago, movies didn't exist. So, look, narrative changes. And we have to be flexible to a certain extent. And the part of me that is in love with the movie theater experience, of course, half of it is just a romantic clinging to childhood. And I love going to the movie theaters. I love, I don't, sometimes I go and I buy a ticket and I buy popcorn because I just want to sit in a movie theater. I don't even care what's playing on the screen. I love it. It's a nice feeling, especially especially in a good movie theater, too. Yeah. You know what? I like the crappy ones, too. And when I'm traveling... I'm a horrible traveling partner. I don't. I, I could be in Rome. I'll be like, we should go see a movie. Uh, I, I love seeing how people watch movies around the world. Is it different? Oh, I mean, I shot a commercial once in a tiny mining town in Mexico, and their movie theater 
was a small room with folding chairs. And do you remember those projection televisions? It was like a Mitsubishi with fake wood grain, and the front would like f- like like hinge forward, and inside there was like a red, a blue, and a green. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need, you need a lot of real estate for it on the on the on the on the inner screen of the box. And yeah, you need yeah, a big living room for it. That was the movie theater there, and the <laughs> craziest movie was playing. The like you would never guess if I gave you a hundred guesses and put a million dollars on we, the line. We want people to sit through a hundred guesses. What was it? Muriel's wedding. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, there was no way you were gonna guess. They just it. found a movie. <laughs> that someone said we have this movie. Or they just have it. great taste. It was a great film. Excellent. So you you think inevitably one of your films is going to be a Netflix or an Amazon or an Apple, and it's just going to happen, and you were going to just sort of suck it up. I mean, or I you'll have hold out to as long as you can. That's just how. Yeah. Uh, look, uh, you want people to see the movies, and look, uh, I've had friends who have directed movies that go to straight to Netflix, yeah. and everyone sees them. You, you're, if you're up at the on the front screen on Netflix for a week, I mean, forget about it. I mean, that's that's millions of people who are otherwise never going to see it. Let's say you're making, you're, you're, you want to get in the movie business today, and your dad is not Ivan Reitman. Just imagine. <laughs> I, I can't relate. I don't uh, know what you're talking about. Uh, what are you doing? Are you making movies on your phone? Are you not making movies? Are you saying movies are an outdated form and we're no, going no, no, to no. make TV? Definitely not an outdated form. I, I think, look, this is the exciting thing about right now. The, de- the democratization of filmmaking is happening. When I started, you needed to buy film. You needed to rent a film camera and get the insurance that went along with yeah. that. You need to process this film and, and, and get it somehow inside an Avid or if you were older than me, cut negative. Now, look, Sean Baker made Tangerine on an iPhone. Sean Baker made one of the best films uh, of the year that came out, and it was all on an iPhone. You can, if you have a phone, which is most people, I'm yep. presuming that like you can get a phone. Yep. All right, let's start with that barrier to entry. It's gonna have a good enough camera to shoot something. You can download all kinds of software to edit, most of it free, and you can distribute through YouTube or whatever you like, and you can reach millions of people. Uh, you have a kind of a group of filmmakers who are learning to edit. I mean, you look at the you look at the kind of hypercutting of young editors on YouTube and it kind of blows you away. And you think that's directly a result of technology. That's them having the ability to get this stuff, this ability to experiment. Oh, sure. I mean, think about it. I, it uh, the old way was <laughs> you play a concert the day you learn guitar, right? And your first time you ever play out of course you don't know how to play guitar. You literally just yeah. picked up the instrument. Now you have – think about how young people know their angles and the use of light and the use of lens and how – you see people take selfies and they're raising the camera because they understand what it does to their face. All these ideas of lensing and camera work are things that are just inherent to a generation. And you would pick up your phone and you think you're still making a 90-minute movie because that's the form you like and that makes sense to you? I mean duration is obviously a really interesting question. Our uh, attention span is shrinking, and yet we are in love with these kind of eight-hour pieces, these kind of, you know, what used to be called a, a miniseries, but now I, I don't even know what the modern name is for it. That's only interesting to me. That just tells me narrative is flexible and that we're ready to consume all kinds of stuff. So you're not fixated on, no, it should be a two-hour thing because that's the best form for this as opposed to, I don't know, I had Steven Soderbergh and we talked about Godless, and that's, you know— 10 hours. There's something about the duration that seems to work. Okay. I mean, look, you have plays going back historically, which are around that duration. There's movies. I mean, it's like that thing, you know that thing where um, 
whatever that 90 beats per minute or 100 beats per minute is that is the beats per minute that we are naturally drawn to. Like if you clap your hands three times yeah. and if you do it too slow, they'll speed it up. The fourth clap, if you clap it too fast, they'll try to slow it down. Like uh, somehow we have a biorhythm that takes us to a duration. And for whatever reason, plays, movies, we want to watch movies around those languages. You think that's the natural state. And I mentioned the, the release date for uh, The Front Runner. Do you spend time getting involved in marketing and promotion and thinking about how these things are going to play out and participating in that strategy, or are you happy to hand that off to a no, studio? No, you got to be involved because you don't want people to lie. I mean, uh, I want people to understand why we made this movie. And uh, and look, you look at the Gary Hart story. There's ten different ways to spin it, and you know, there's one way to spin it as being pro Hart, another one being uh, pro journalist, uh, and uh, it involves so much. Pol- you have to get involved and be like, hey. This is a movie that takes all sides. This is a movie that leaves it for the audience. This is a movie where you're going to see it with somebody, and the two people in the audience are going to see different movies, and you're going to argue about it after. And I'm not sure if all those ideas get out if I just go, hey, thanks, and walk away. And we were earlier talking about a bunch of things. You mentioned your, your enmity for Facebook, which is not now, which is now a, a more popular idea to be anti-Facebook. But I mean, are you thinking I was about, early on that. Are, I was, are you thinking we should be promoting this on social media, or we shouldn't, or we should push it out? This way on social and this way on TV or that you're happy to hand over? I mean, you have to, but I don't pretend to be an expert in that. And the studios are now very sophisticated with the people they have and the departments they have that are looking at the analytics and are figuring out ways to reach people. I got to say, Tully, which I just saw in preparation for this interview. How was the flight that you watched it on? I I watched it on my my Roku TV in my basement Mm -hmm. and uh, I took one break, which is the big, for me, that's the big reason to go see it in theaters. You Mm. watch the whole movie, you know, get up and go talk to someone in your family. But it, it played great. But the only reason I knew about that movie, and it's kind of targeted right for me, uh, was I heard you on Sean Fennessy's podcast mm-hmm. last spring. And it seems like that's a movie that got drowned out for whatever reason. Look, there's a lot of noise out there. And it's hard to cut through. And, in, you know, I'm not within the Marvel universe. Right. So these movies succeed because... People talk to each other about them. And look, that is the exciting thing about social media. Is it an environment where people go, hey, I like this. Hey, I don't like this. Do you ever think, maybe I should be in the Marvel Universe. Maybe I could do a really interesting I don't know. What what Marvel movie do you want to see me make? I don't know that I do. But there is that sort of idea, (laughs) right? That like, oh, you can do a, you know. uh, No, Ragnarok was amazing. The Taika Waititi's film. uh, The Wolverine one. Logan? Yeah. Well, that was brilliant. That was brilliant. And I I don't think of that as part of the Marvel Universe, only because it was made over at Fox, it was done independently, and it was really done as a director-centric film. Most of the Marvel movies are not director-centric. I I don't think that's an insult. I think that's just a reality. Let's just blow it out bigger. Are you interested in doing a really big budget Budget, budget. We don't edit uh, thing with monsters, and and maybe it's related to some sort of existing. If it had a core theme that I was into, uh, look, my father has a great. uh, Okay, once. One day my father calls me and he says, you got to come over to the house and watch 24. And I'm like, like the Kiefer Sutherland show? And he's like, yeah, you got to come over. I was like, all right. So I like go over to my dad's house. Okay, he's dad. got, got a movie theater in his house. We sit down. We watch four episodes, like four hours of 24. And it's great. Yeah. Like it's phenomenal. Like the show was really good. And I, t- I said to my dad, why is this show? There's so many shows about terrorism. Why is this show so good? And he looked at me and said, this isn't a show about terrorism. Terrorism is a location. This is a show about a man trying to save his family. And when I started to apply that to all filmmaking, this was one of the great filmmaking lessons I had ever learned. Don't confuse your location for your story. Juno is not a movie about teenage pregnancy. Teenage pregnancy is a location, a location to talk about 
innocence in the moment we decide to grow up. So when we talk about the size of a film or aliens or, you know, sci-fi, all of that is location to me. If I got to tell a personal story, as personal as all these other films are to me, as Tully is to me, as the front runner is to me, within a larger movie, hell yeah, I would do that movie. I mean, I think, uh, look at The Fugitive. The Fugitive is a personal story. Even Die Hard, frankly, is a yeah. personal story. Die Hard is a, is, is a marriage clinging on for dear life, and there just happens to be, you know, these Eastern European terrorists in the in Nakatomi Plaza. Sorry, I just went on a Die Hard reverie. Uh, Holly Gennaro. Yeah, but think about how that movie ends. That movie ends yeah. with, you know, pulling the wristwatch off, you yep. know? yep. Um, he had to take his feet off because he the shoes off because he's anxious about shoot the glass. Yeah, so great. Every day we say shoot the glass on set because like we're constantly using like filters and things like that. And my DP Eric and I, who met each other when we were like 15 years old, and can't believe to this day that we get to make movies together. <laughs> like every day on set, at one point, is like Eric shoot the glass. I wanted to end with like a big thematic question, but here's just the thing. That's so you in didn't my want head. to end on Die Hard? No, no, I love Die Hard. We could just do an entire Die Hard podcast. I don't know if anyone would listen, but I would listen. 1987, you make a period piece in 87. What was the most surprising thing when you went back and researched what was happening in 1987 that you had to emulate or replicate? So much. And look, here's the thing with a film like this. Pre-internet, which is the thing that always blows yeah. my mind. Yeah. So 87, you have the birth of a satellite truck, uh, which is creating the 24-hour news cycle. You have CNN giving satellite phones to their journal. Journalists uh, to report uh, from the first time you have a current affair goes on television. It's the same moment as Tammy Faye Baker and Oliver uh, and Oliver Stone, um, yeah. uh, Oliver North, and and Oliver Stone. A lot of things are happening at once, and so the question as a director is. How do I get this information on screen without making the audience feel like, hey, look at this, look at that, I'm spoon feeding you? So. You find a way, or, or just, uh, where's the beef? How do you get that moment into the movie without spoon-feeding it to the audience? So the real task, and it was fun to do, was to find a way to just populate the screen with all this information that made it feel as though you just happened upon something, that you accidentally saw that detail. Creating an environment rich with information that never was telling the audience, this is the point of the movie. Having three conversations going at once where you have to make a decision that is similar to the philosophy of the film. What is important versus what is entertaining? And are you spending time going, oh, let's bring in that Spuds McKenzie ad, and someone has to go, no, that's actually 1991. <laughs> it's not period. You can't have it. Uh, by the way, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, we're thinking about what were the popular movies, what were the popular songs, what clothes, what hair. And the 80s are tough, right? Because the 80s are big hair and neon colors. It's that wedding singer Smoking. version of the 80s. Yeah. And so it's very easy to lean into this kind of shocking pink version of the 80s that is fun, but a little less real and not as nuanced as the film we're trying to make. So how do you capture this era with all its detail and texture that is still true to a political campaign? Did you get feedback from authentic political journalists? I'm capitalizing them as a... Uh, who, who, uh, who were around at the time? Yeah, yeah. I mean... Uh, based on the map Bible. Every but. campaign person, uh, would we would send this questionnaire, and the questionnaire would ask, what did you drink at the time? What did you eat at the time? Who was your favorite sports team? What was your favorite song? What did you always have in your pocket? Like all kinds of what little questions. What was the most surprising answer in that question? Oh, uh, the most surprising? I actually don't know if anything was that shocking. Okay. It was just a great level of detail. It's like what does Gary Hart like to drink? If it was a bad day of vodka, a good day of chocolate milkshake. That's a good way to end, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Let's, let's, let's make it a chocolate milkshake day. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Jason Reitman. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. 
As promised, I have some extended thank yous today. I normally thank Golda and Eric and Joel. I want to thank them again. But I have a lot of people to thank today because I've had a lot of support from the people I work with at Vox Media, starting with Jim Bankoff all the way down. Down is the wrong word. All around Vox Media. Everyone's been great. A lot of people have pitched in guest hosting. Lydia Polgreen, Stephen Perlberg, Kurt Wagner, our very own Kurt Wagner from Recode. We may see a couple more guest hosts show up in the next few weeks. I also wanted to thank you guys for listening. Um, You've been writing. You've been sending me nice notes. It is all very much appreciated. So thank you again. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me, and I will see you soon. Today's show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter, which is the presenting sponsor of Recode Media. Thank you, ZipRecruiter. You know what's not smart? Watching cable news every day and pretending it is executive time. You know what is smart? Using ZipRecruiter to hire for your business. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Their powerful technology scans thousands of resumes to identify people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job and actively invites them to apply so you get qualified candidates fast. And ZipRecruiter spotlights the top candidates for your job so you never miss out on a great match. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. Who rates them number one? Trustpilot. They rated hiring sites with more than 1,000 reviews. That's who. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Now, our listeners can try it for free at ziprecruiter.com slash peter. That's ziprecruiter.com slash peter. Peter.